This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good morning. Been a nice cold week, hasn't it? Had uh, a very mild winter, I was saying this morning, and then it felt like we got caught all up this last week. But I'm glad everybody is here, everybody was safe, and I think for the most part we stayed warm and fed, unlike some people in some other places, like my original home state of Texas. So uh, we have much to be thankful for, and uh, I'm thankful to be here with you today. I really appreciated uh, what... Kaylin started us out with by saying that, um, you know, it's pretty amazing that we're here today because people obeyed uh, that great commission. What a, what a wonderful thought to feel like we're a part of that now and to see the fruits, the long-term fruits of God's working in, in this world. I want to start us out by uh, turning to Psalms chapter 32, verse 8. And uh, it's a very short verse. It says, I will instruct thee... And teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. This is God speaking. You may have heard of a black light before. It's a lamp that emits long wave UVA or ultraviolet light and very little visible light. One of the primary purposes of these lamps is to <clears throat> excuse me, observe fluorescence, which is the emission of light by a substance that uh, has absorbed light or radi uh, electromagnetic radiation from another source. You can shine that UVA light from the black light and you can see a glow that highlights objects that might otherwise be invisible to the naked eye. Now, it's commonly used to authenticate oil paintings, uh, antiques, banknotes. They have sp uh, special fluorescent ink, uh, which is what they use in invisible pens and those stamps they put on your hand at theme parks and things that they can see later. There's even a profession known as non-destructive inspection, which uses fluorescent penetrant dye on things like aircraft engines, high-rise buildings, bridges, etc. <clears throat> and what it's meant to do is to, it seeps into these hairline fractures and cracks that are not visible to the naked eye and it allows you to see them so that you can prevent catastrophic failure. You can also use black light to test for drugs. LSD, methamphetamines, things like that, that were used in a house, you know. If you go into one of those homes where they made those types of things, it'll make you sick. And black light can help find the residue that shows that that was happening. What it does is it shows you things that are hidden but might be dangerous. It shows you things that are present even though they're invisible. The very, <clears throat> excuse me, the primary thing to take away from this example, however, is that all sight first requires light. When God says, I will guide thee with mine eye, what he's saying is that he's going to provide a light that will reveal and guide beyond what is normal. He can and will supernaturally lead us with his special light. Now, Jesus elaborated on this spiritual insight in Luke chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, which is where I'd like to draw the text for today's message from. I'm going to quickly read through that, starting in verse 33. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, 
but on a candlestick, and they which come in may see the light. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body is also full of light. But when thy eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. So what are we discussing here this morning? As we examine this passage of Scripture I just read, I want to consider four things. The idea of darkness and light, why it's important to seek God's light, our responsibilities as it relates to the light in our lives, and why it is that so many people seem to shun the light. To our first point, what is Jesus really talking about when he talks about the light of the body and our eye? Jesus is talking primarily about spiritual sight here, but our, spirit, but our physical eyes also take part in this process. As we read through this this morning, I want you to be thinking simultaneously both about our spiritual sight and our physical sight because what we ingest in this world, that's really the uh, motivator for me studying this is we're inundated with a lot of different things and it's not always the light. So be thinking about both things simultaneously. Uh, Jesus here refers to a candle. In our modern world, we might think of this as a flashlight. Christ does not here mean for us to focus on an actual candle or flashlight, but instead we're to understand that this candle or this flashlight in our example is an analogy of a spiritual source of light. Now, our spiritual candle or flashlight is the Holy Spirit living within us. Jesus called Him our helper precisely because He teaches us and He allows us to see truths that would otherwise confuse and bewilder us. When one studies God's Word under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit, light is shed upon the truths there. And those truths, they're kept hidden from the world. Without the light, which is the power of God, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. So what Jesus first highlights in verse 33 of our text is what should be an obvious truth. When one is given a tool meant to shed light, one should turn it on so that it provides that light and so that everyone can see. Now, you've probably heard a million different lessons on this, and it's always a danger when you're going to put together a lesson on something people feel, feel they're familiar with, that they'll be bored from the moment they see what you're going to talk about. And I could say that this lesson is meant just for the kids, you know, to establish a firm foundation. But I am convinced over the past few months, just looking at my own life, that I need to hear this. And uh, I think that the world needs to hear it. And it is my hope that as we look at this, we won't brush it aside as something that is obvious, something that we already know, but that we'll look for that deeper meaning, because I assure you it's there. And we're going to try to use God's light to shine a little bit on this this morning, and hopefully we'll all come away with a different perspective uh, going forward in this week. So, we usually focus, when we read this verse, on the fact that this very first verse here, verse 33, calls upon you and I to be a light to the world. But before that lamp 
gives light to the world, it first gives light to us. And this is of key importance. Why do I state the obvious? Because I believe that many times, especially in these times, the Christian may figuratively set their flashlight down and they wander off into the darkness. Sometimes they say that they're doing that because they're seeking others who are lost. So let me just set this down. I'm going to wander off into that same darkness Try to bring them to me. You've got to go where they are, right? Be how they are to bring them to Christ. It's not what this is saying here. They themselves become lost. And I think this sometimes happens because we forget just what the darkness is. So before we discuss the light any further, I want to set the stage by discussing the dark. What is darkness? In Matthew chapter 22, <clears throat> verses 1 through 13... <clears throat> I want to turn there because we're going to be referencing a few things and I'm not putting it up on the screen. Matthew 22, 1 through 13. Here we see the parable of the marriage of the king's son. Here God the Father is represented by the king and he's arranging the marriage of Jesus and the church and he has a mind to have a great feast. Now those who were originally invited, the Jews... They did not come when they were bid to this wedding. And the king was so upset that he sent armies to devastate and destroy them. And then he sent his servants out to fetch the Gentiles to the feast instead. Now, these Gentiles were not exceptional. They were not better than the Jews. The Bible tells us, if you look down at your scripture there, that some are good and some were bad. And they came from unlikely places. The King James Version says that they are pulled from the highways. Now, I'm mindful of that broad way that the lost are traveling. That wide road, which is easy to get onto, but has but one destination, hell. But God, in His mercy and grace, the King in this parable, He fetches us from off that road and shows us the straight and narrow path found by only a few, according to the Bible. And the king tells us that he's fetching us to a wedding feast for a son. Now, in Jewish times, a wedding was an extraordinary affair. We could make a whole lesson series on that. But for this morning, I'm just going to say it required watchfulness and a certain level of decorum. In another parable, we're told of the need to have oil in our lamps, to be ready to go at a moment's notice for the bridegroom could come at any time and unexpectedly. I don't know if you've ever studied that in depth before, but that's the way it always was. It wasn't like this was one wedding where the bridegroom was going to surprise anybody. It was always this way. He went off to prepare a home, to prepare a place to bring his bride to, and nobody really knew when that was going to be. But they all wanted to be at that wedding feast. So when the bridegroom came, it could have been in the middle of the night, you better have your lamps trimmed and bright and ready to go or you'd miss out on that feast. So <clears throat> these Gentile guests, they arrive at this wedding feast that the king is putting together for his son. And we find that one of them shows up without the necessary wedding garments. Now imagine that he just showed up wearing his dirty old traveling clothes that he was pulled off that broad way in. How many of you, if summoned by a king, would just come as you are? Would you not clean yourself up a little bit, dress in your finest, maybe put on some perfume or cologne? And yet here is one who answered the invitation, but apparently did not take it seriously. 
He, did, he certainly didn't approach it respectfully. And from this, we can take that he had a head knowledge. He knew there was a wedding. He knew he'd been invited. He knew he was to go there. But he was lacking a heart knowledge that causes a change in character and action. And then the king shows up to the feast. And he sees this man not wearing his wedding garments, and he challenges him. And notice how he approaches it. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now when I read this, I imagine God thinking to himself, This man knows that I just destroyed the original guest with my armies for sliding me. And there's no way he could be ignorant of that fact. And he knows I called him to the same event for which I have already shown I am prepared to take action and defend the honor of. And yet, he shows up without a wedding garment. It appears, if God appears on his great day, and he has to ask us why we refused to come to the place he called us, by the means he called us, in the way he called us, I can assure you that our only response is going to be the same as this man. The Bible says he was speechless. Now, there's a lot of commentators that believe that this little sentence here that says, and he was speechless, refers to the man he was talking to. Uh, and he had no response for God when he asked him why. And that may very well be the case. I also think that you could also say that perhaps God felt a little speechless at the audacity of what he saw. All this, you saw all this stuff, I invited you, and yet you still show up without a wedding garment? I'm just speechless. You ever been at that point before? What happened next in this story is the main point of focus for our lesson this morning. We're told that the king commanded this man be bound hand and foot. You see, the time for action was over. This man would now be so constrained that he couldn't go back and fix the problem. He couldn't go back and dress properly. He was to be bound in the consequences of his action or inaction in this case. And then he was to be cast into outer darkness. Three words, cast, outer, and darkness. I said I wanted to define darkness. And here we see that darkness is both a place and a condition. It is a place that exists far from God. It is the condition of God's absence. In Revelations 21, verse 23, we read that the city, the new city, the new Jerusalem, had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. But the man in our parable was cast from this place into an outer area, an area of darkness. 1 John 1 verse 5 says, This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So you see, this man was thrown, was cast into the place where the condition is darkness simply because God is not there. Any light, all light is God. Any darkness, all darkness is where God is not at. He has removed himself from that place. So why is the light so important? Because the light is God himself. 
As of today, we understand that God has manifested Himself in this world as a light in the darkness because He is sending out an invitation of salvation to the whole world. But someday, that light in the darkness that is God will go out. It will not go out because it's been extinguished. That can never happen. But it will go out because it will be removed from the presence of some. That darkness is not a place I want to be bound up and stuck into. Bound hand and foot like an unprepared guest at the king's wedding. And my message this morning is that our eyes need to be focused on the light rather than that darkness if we want to avoid losing sight of the light. We're going to address a few more things here, but that is the point. What are we taking in with our eyes, with our senses? What are we digesting mentally, spiritually, physically, socially? Is it the light or is it the darkness? God is all, not some. Any darkness is consuming something that is not God. You know, I remember as a boy going to the Sonora Caverns in Texas. I don't know if any of you have been there before, but they're better than the Carlsbad Caverns because they say they're alive. People haven't handled the stalagmites or whatever, and uh, the oils in their skin have not prevented those things from growing, so they're beautiful. There's tons of pictures. This is just one. So it was exciting when I was a boy. I was probably Ethan's age or younger. And we're going into the depths of the earth. And all around, here's these fascinating formations. I wasn't as interested in those as just going down in this big hole, right? And it was all gloriously lit up by a series of lights. You could see everything. And it let us enjoy what would otherwise be invisible. Now, at one point, the tour guide told us, all right, y'all, now stand still. We're about to turn off all the lights. We'd gone down very deep. And they said, you know, you're about to experience pitch black. We want you to see just how dark it is down here. Well, having never been there before, I figured I knew what was coming. I'd turn the lights off at home. I'd seen a moonless, starless night. And how different could it really be? Dark is dark, right? Needless to say, I thought the tour guide was exaggerating uh, when we had to stand just so. You know, like, I'm not going to fall when you turn the lights out, right? I can, you know, hold on to the guardrail. All right. And then he turned off the lights, and it was so completely black. The first thing I did was I blinked my eyes. You know how you blink your eyes because you can adjust them and you're looking for some level of night vision? And I'll tell you, it was the strangest thing not being able to, cha to change. We're so used to our eyes picking up some degree of light. There was none there. And there was, it was a blackness that was so thick, it felt like a physical presence encroaching on me. Never experienced anything like it. And let me tell you, that kind of darkness is so thick that it plays tricks on your minds. And it begins to affect even your balance. Because you've got nothing to gauge anything off of. And all of a sudden it makes sense why I'm holding this guardrail. I know what should be around me, but I literally have nothing to gauge anything off of anymore. And heaven forbid you've got an ear infection. Because then your equilibrium, you're just going to fall. You don't realize how valuable the light is to you and what utter darkness is like. That darkness, you know, you might as well be 
completely helpless. If those lights hadn't come back on, we all would have died down there. It was a maze, impossible to get out. It was oppressive. That darkness, it's like a living thing. I can't express it. If you've not ever experienced it, you can't know until you do. And if you have experienced it, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. When the lights came back on, it was a relief. I could see again. And we moved back to the surface, and I had a new appreciation for even the dim light that was to be found in a normal night under the sky. You know, our dark nights are not really darkness at all by comparison. Even when we close our eyes at night, that's not total darkness. That's not the complete absence of light. Precious friends, someday... There will be people who are bodily thrown into an outer darkness that makes the pitch black of the Sonora Caverns seem like gazing into the blinding light of the sun. And because in the outer darkness, the source of all light, both physical and spiritual, will be removed. That outer darkness will be so oppressive, so menacing, so desolate, so intimidating, and so fearful that the Bible tells us there will be weeping, a gnashing of teeth. And something I want to say to everyone this morning is, friends, no matter how dark your life may sometimes seem, you are not in the outer darkness. God is still here. He is shedding His light in the twilight of this world. Place your hope in that. Set your eyes on the light, not the dark. Because when we choose to focus on the darkness, we become like it. Desolate, fearful, lonely, desperate, reckless. Don't focus on the darkness. That leads us to our next point of consideration. Why is it important? <clears throat> well, we just showed it's important to be in the light because it's where God is. But that isn't the facet of importance that I want to examine today. I want to examine why it is important to use the light. Now, that's similar to what we've already discussed, but there is more to it. In our text, Jesus warns that we will either be filled with light or with darkness, and we need to decide which it's going to be. Remember that light is the primary thing that allows sight. And as such, we need to consider what becomes of our sight when our eyes drink in darkness instead of focusing on the light. So Jesus tells us in verse 34 of Luke 11 that our eyes, what we allow ourselves to take in, will determine everything else about us. If we take in the light, we will have light. But notice in the King James Version, it uses the word single. That word single means simple or sound in the Greek. In other words, when we fix our eyes simply and soundly on only the light, then our whole bodies and our souls will also be filled with light. But when our eye isn't working right, when it is evil, when it's no longer picking up the light, the picture becomes garbled and spotty. Eventually, it's so distorted that you either cannot get a true picture of what you're looking at anymore, or you simply go blind and you see only darkness. You see, the danger in eternity is no sight. But the danger in this life is perverted sight. Get that straight. The danger in eternity is no sight because you have no light. 
But the danger in this life is perverted sight because you got a little bit of light mixed with darkness. That is a great danger. Now, the medical profession will tell you that we consider people legally blind who can still see some lights or shadows. This used to always confuse me when I was a boy. I'd somebody say, they're illegally blind. I'm like, well, they're getting around. How can they be legally blind? Their eyes still register something, but they might as well be blind for all the good it does them. They aren't allowed to drive usually, and they're considered disabled. Jesus had this idea in mind, I believe, when in verse 34 he says that your eye is either working properly, and the result is you fully take in light to illuminate your life, or it is evil, it is not working properly, and you are disabled. Now the problem with some legally blind people is they don't realize that they're legally blind. They don't realize just how bad their vision has become. According to WebMD, if you're completely blind, you can't see any light or form. But the people who have eye disorders, only about 15% of them are actually fully blind. Most people are legally blind. You can still see, just not that clearly, and it varies from person to person. You might be able to see objects at a distance, but not up close. Uh, or not from the sides of your eyes, your uh, peripheral vision. And here's just a few pictures of what it looks like to have various things going on with your eyesight. You know, states will get involved with people who are legally blind, and they will not let them do certain things, like drive. And you can see why. You need to be able to see perfectly clearly or not drive at all. It's what it amounts to, because not just your life is at risk, but other people's are as well. Our spiritual lives are no different. Without the right light, we don't register the twists and turns on the road of life in time to react properly. And it leads us into a ditch, doesn't it? You know, Paul explains why spiritual light and sight is so important in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Again, Ephesians 4, 17-24, Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but ye have not so learned Christ." If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt, according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Why is understanding the difference between light and darkness, sight versus blindness, so important? Because when speaking of our spiritual sight, we're either seeing clearly or we are blinded to some degree or another. And brothers and sisters, any degree of blindness of sight is a handicap. Jesus warns that we either have singular vision or we are completely blind. It's one or the other. There is no in-between. And this is why our next point focuses on the fact that we're responsible to keep our lamps trimmed and bright. Back in verse 33 of Luke 11, 
we see that we control the lamp or the flashlight, don't we? We don't control the source of power. We don't control the protective casing as if it were a flashlight. We can't even take credit for the reaction that causes the light. But we do control whether the switch is in the on or off position, don't we? We control the state of the lens, don't we? There's a story which goes like this. One night, a motorist he was run down uh, by a train at a grade crossing. Once upon a time, there were these signalmen there, and they'd wave a lantern if a train was coming, right? Well, the old signalman who was in charge where that accident happened, he had to appear in court. And after a severe cross-examination, you know, because back then they, they tended to blame that guy first. The person wouldn't have been in the railroad track if you'd done your job, right? So he goes to court, but he was still unshaken. He said he had waved his lantern frantically, but all to no avail. Well, the following day, the superintendent of the line called him to his office, and he was relieved because, you know, the railroad would have been sued. The guy hadn't done his job, and he says, you did wonderfully well yesterday, Tom. He said, I was afraid at first that you might waver. No, sir, replied Tom, but I was afraid the old lawyer was going to ask me whether or not my lantern was lit. Sometimes, Jesus' most powerful points were the ones that seemed the most simple. And I fear that we gloss over them sometimes by not going back and looking at these simple verses like what we're looking at this morning. This is one of those points. We have light, but we must use it to illuminate our lives. If we choose not to use the light, we will remain in the darkness that Paul says we should eliminate. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. We are destroying sophisticated arguments and every exalted and proud thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought and purpose captive to the obedience of Christ. I read that from the Amplified Version because it really spells it out, doesn't it? Let me ask you. Can we say that this verse holds true for the church today? You know, normally I'd say, does it hold true for you today? But I 100% believe that all of our problems in this nation and around this world can be laid squarely at the feet of the church and its inactivity and unwillingness to stand up when it mattered over the last hundred years or so. Have we shown the light of God into the dark recesses of the world as a church and thereby destroyed the world's arguments? Did we uphold God's truth in our society? Was Roe versus Wade God's truth? Was removing prayer from school God's truth? Was perverting marriage God's truth? Is perverting our biological bodies and genders God's truth? Is perverting the work ethic of the Bible by taking on communism and slavery by another name, socialism? Is all of that God's truth? Did the church stand up? Because sometimes we say as individuals, well, there may not be a whole lot. I've only got so much light that I can shine. But we're part of the church The church has a few things they're going to answer for to God, I think, someday. 
But we're still here. God is still affording us his light. We need to take every thought and purpose captive. Every thought and purpose captive. Everything you do, every single day, nothing is too trivial to take captive to the purpose of God. Man, that's convicting for me. I can't tell you how much I, time I waste in my day. I've come to the conclusion I have to be one of the most selfish people that live on this earth. So much of what I do is all about me. So many times in this peacemaker thing, I've been convicted because one of the things he says is, you know, if you find yourself getting into conflict, ask what need is not being met. Ask what your true motivation is. And, you know, a lot of times what it is is maybe I just want quiet. Maybe it's, it all comes back to me. It's not about benefiting, blessing those around me. It's about me. And I think that uh, that's, not, that's counter to what the purpose of light is. Light is meant to shine. But our natural inclination is to turn it in on ourselves, isn't it? Before you know it, not only is the world not getting any light, but neither are we because we've got it clutched against our chest, thinking about ourselves and the wrong things. I think it's safe to say Many people will read this verse here, and they'll say something like, well, that's impossible. That's just unrealistic. I can't be perfect. God's not asking you to be perfect. He's asking you to take captive when you come across it, when you find it. There's no doubt that's hard to do, but it's precisely why we're told to take a very precise and detailed approach to our thought lives. You know what I've learned? I'm not super old yet, but... Every time we go out somewhere, like on one of these hiking trips or whatever, I realize I'm getting older. And um, my body doesn't recover. And, you know, when I'm out with someone like Joe and he's, you know, at the prime of his peak physical condition, I have just enough pride left and just enough strength left that I'll kill myself to either keep up or, or beat. But those days are coming to a close. And... What I've learned is it's not the actions that give me the ability to do that. My muscles are saying, stop, you idiot. You've torn. You've got all these problems. You're just making it worse. But my thoughts, those produce something. They drive everything. Your thoughts life is more important than your actionable life. Sometimes you may go and commit a stupid sin. You might get on a computer look at something you shouldn't. You might take a substance, you shouldn't. You might do something with another person, you shouldn't. But let me tell you something. That is just a consequence of thoughts that were turning in your head for sometimes months. You build up to every action in your head. Stop trying to take your actions captive. Take your thoughts captive. And your actions will take care of themselves. Now, Paul tells us that some thoughts, even though they sound sophisticated, and even though they're held up by the elite of this world as something the best and the brightest are talking about, they're actually used to challenge the true knowledge of God. Now, let me ask you something. Specifically, young people, is it okay with you to have even one tiny thought in your head that you allow to go unchallenged or that you entertain 
which challenges the true knowledge you have from God. I'm assuming you know the truth. And once you know the truth, are you okay with having one grain of abrasive sand, as it were, being ground against the window of your soul? Do you care if there's something scratching the mirror that you're daily looking at to see how Christ-like you look? Do you accept a filter on your light source that changes what you see in that mirror? Most young people, if they're honest, if they're even half the time paying attention when someone's talking to them, is they don't really believe that. They think small things can be managed. I can accept that grain of glass, you know, or the sand scratching the glass because, you know, I'll just look around it. I can have that darkness there. I mean, I'll just, you know, navigate around it. I got the light here. I can see that's a dark splotch. You know, I'm just going to be in and out real quick. No problem. It's not going to affect me. That's what they really think. Maybe not the young people in this congregation, but I used to be a young person in a congregation like this, and boy, I knew everything, and I took a lot of risks that were not necessary. I was okay with having something scratching up the glass in the window of my soul. So I want to share you share with you a story about the Hubble telescope. Now, the Hubble telescope was initially conceived and budgeted for back in the 1970s, and the launch was planned for 1983. Various mis mishaps happened, not the least of which the Challenger disaster, which was the shuttle, space shuttle that blew up the first time. It delayed the project for years. When it eventually launched, it was 1990, and scientists expected to, the Hubble to take its place among NASA's great observatories, sort of like the uh, Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, you know, cutting edge stuff. The Hubble was expected to deliver phenomenal images, thanks primarily to its ability to capture those images with little to no backlight, because you always have backlight, as I learned from Brother Kalin at his telescope. Uh, with an earthbound telescope. Now that sounds like a huge task, but the Hubble was equipped with one of the most powerful mirrors that was ever built. A team of the best engineers in the world, they are only missing one, two actually, Derek and Janice, but the, the rest of the best engineers in the world, they gathered to build that mirror and they worked for 12 hour days for five straight years, grinding that mirror with equipment that would make sure it was perfect to within a millionth of an inch. And then, whoops, there was a guy named Lou Montagnino who was in charge of testing the thing. And he was using equipment that was so sensitive that they had to use it in the middle of the night because just the vibration of a car driving by miles away would throw it off. Now, un unknown to Lou, a microscopic chip of paint flecked off of a measuring tool that was supposed to make sure the mirror was the right shape. It started giving back false readings after that as a result, and the mirror wound, off, wound up being off by four microns. That was their mistake, four microns. You know how big that is? That's 25 times smaller than the width of a human hair. <laughs> that seems really small, right? Feel like, young people, you could just ignore that, right? Something that small, not going to make a big difference, right? That was their mistake. What's the worst that could happen? Well, when the first images were returned from the Hubble, the quality was drastically less than what they expected. 
what they got was this on the left. What they should have had was what was on the right. Now, I could blow my nose in a tissue and get that. And for billions of dollars, I would expect to get more than that quality. And it, more importantly, it couldn't do what NASA needed it to do. We built that telescope for a specific reason, and it just couldn't do it. Of course, the real problem was by that time, when they discovered this flaw, the telescope was already out in space. It was delayed by nearly a decade, and it still was screwed up when it went out there. Say goodbye to a few billion more dollars, which is what it cost for a series of space shuttle missions uh, to fix the thing's mirror. Those repairs got so costly that some people were debating whether it wouldn't be better to just build a new one. Uh, some people were saying they were surprised they didn't just strap Lou Montagnino to a rocket and send him up there with some really fine grit sandpaper in his hand. You see, even the smallest thought, please hear me on this, even the smallest thought, not taken captive for the sake of obedience to Christ, can in the end prevent you from seeing the truth. You're seeing something, but it's not the truth. And here's the real dangerous thing. We are constantly treated, especially today, like we're the experts of our lives. Are you the expert of your life? Am I the expert of my life? My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. We've all got our truth, and we all know it. Whatever makes you feel great, go do it. That is just so incredibly stupid. It is contrary to everything God teaches in his word. And yet that is what is going on. And don't think that that's not a cunning strategy of Satan himself. You manage your life. You call the, the balls and the strikes. You decide what level of detail matters. Well, it's my truth, Lou says. I don't think that it should matter. Let's just go with this. I kind of like that better than this anyway. It serves my purpose. You see how dumb that is? And yes, it's dumb. Some things are not, oh, that was worth a discussion. Some things aren't even worth discussing. They're wrong. If the light of God is illuminating a truth for you in your life, you don't let even one microscopic fleck of paint, of darkness, of evil, of wrong, of non-truth, you don't let any of it remain in your life because I can assure you this, it will come back at the most unexpected time in the most unforeseen way, and it will wreak havoc in your life. Uh, and hindsight's always 20-20, but it does you very little good if your goal is to fix or prevent that type of error. And when you're playing with your soul and the soul of others, no level of attention to detail is too much. So for that reason, we need to pray as David did. Psalms 119, verse 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold the wondrous things out of thy law. Pray that God will give you understanding of his word. We need to make a personal commitment, as Job did. Job 31, 1, 8. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Make a promise. Make an agreement. 
about what you will and will not look at and listen to. And we need to decide that we will guard the lens of our spiritual flashlights or lamps. We need to decide we will use those lamps, that we will turn them on so that we can declare as David did in Psalms 101 verses 3 through 4, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. I will not know a wicked person. Now, that doesn't mean you will not deal lovingly with them, try to reach out to them, but no, you will not be intimate with them. You will not marry them. You will not closely befriend them. You will try to help save them, but you will not live life as though it's normal and thereby jeopardize yourself and ensure their eternal damnation. That's just not acceptable. People and wrong ideas must be challenged by having the light of truth shined on it. If you love people, you will not allow darkness in their life to go unchallenged. If you don't love them, then sure, you can shine the light any which way. You're doing them no favors, and you will answer to God for it someday. That is in the Bible. Just remember that the mistake we too often make is thinking that something can be so small that we can ignore it. If God is highlighting a blind spot in our lives, we must desire to fix it. And the very last point I've got is why is the light shunned? Why do we allow the lens of our life to be fouled? Why don't we use the light that we have in our possession? If we're honest, it really comes down to being discontent with God. The Bible is replete with tragic stories of those who were not satisfied with the light of God and turned to the darkness instead. Simply put, sometimes we don't like what we're seeing, so we turn the light off and try to put a filter on it. That's a hard truth to accept, yet we all wrestle with it from time to time, if we're honest. Christ lays it out very plainly and simply. He says in John 3:19, and this is the condemnation that... Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I've got news for everyone. We're all still men. We're all mankind. We may be saved men, but we're still men in a fallen world dealing with sin, and we're going to struggle with it our entire lives. We're going to struggle about keeping our lamps trimmed and bright. Sometimes even the best people choose not to turn on the light and examine a thing because they don't like what they know they're going to find. Have you ever come across a child who was doing something wrong? Perhaps you wanted to find him. Johnny, you call. No answer. Johnny! Still no answer. Where is that boy? You wonder as you begin to search for him, but there's no sign. It's broad daylight. Where could he be? You begin to get worried. You rush outside, but there's no sign of him there either. You rush back in, beginning to feel desperate. Should you call the police? Was he abducted? As you rush by the stairs, you hear a dull thud. And it sounds like it's coming from the stairs. So you rush over, you look up the stairs, but there's no one there. Then a shuffling noise catches your ear. Sounds like it's coming from the closet that's under the stairs. So you open the door, but the closet is empty. Just as you go to shut that closet door, you hear another thud. It's coming from this closet. What is going on here? So you look in the back, and there's a little bitty trap door in the back of the closet. 
because this is an old house. It's shut, but you decide you're going to investigate anyway. Maybe there's a raccoon. Ran off with little Johnny. The closet's dark. You notice the bulb is burnt out. But there's at least a little bit of light. You grab a flashlight, you make your way to the back of the closet, and you open that small trap door. Inside, you find thick cobwebs. There's an old snake skin. There's one of those dead ferrets Clint told us he keeps. And utter blackness, from which you again hear that shuffling. So you shine a light in until something catches your eye. It's little Johnny. And he's got something he's not supposed to have. He came all the way into this dark, nasty place that's dangerous because he knew he shouldn't have that thing. The normal closet was dark, but it wasn't dark enough for little Johnny because you could have found him there, right? You call out, Johnny, what are you doing down here? And is that my fill-in-the-blank with whatever he shouldn't have? Johnny, this is the interesting part now. Johnny's startled. He shields his eyes from your flashlight. And he yells at you. Ha! You scared him. He knows better, but you caught him. He was caught red-handed. So what does he do? He throws the item at you. Hits you right in the eye. Because you startled him in that dark place. And then he scuttles further away. Now he's off in this corner. There's nails sticking through the boards. And you're trying to get to him. And you're hoping he doesn't give himself tetanus and stab himself in one of these nails. He's just making things worse, but he won't listen to you. He doesn't want to have been caught. He still wants to hide what he was doing. And this is the state Jesus found mankind in. We need to understand that when we choose to focus on, take in, and digest anything other than Christ. Because it's where our hearts have taken us. <laughs> and there comes a point where we are little Johnny. We choose to go out into the darkness sometimes. It didn't sneak up on us. Our light wasn't quickly snuffed out. We cover the lens of our figurative flashlight so we can enjoy wickedness in the dark. That is why we do it. That is why we shun the light. It takes courage to have God's revealing light shined upon our lives. But if we love God, then we must learn to love the light. Because God is the light. The writer of Job asks that God let him know if his step is turned away from the way of God, if his heart has covetously followed his eyes, or if any spot of guilt has stained his hands. There was a little boy who walked along a country lane one dark night with his father, and he carried the lantern. And the black silence that was all about frightened him. He said, Father, this light reaches such a little way, I'm afraid. And his father answered, True, my boy, but if you walk on, the light will shine to the end of your journey. There are night times in the Christian experience when God gives us only enough light to see the next step in front of us. And that's all that's needed. His light will never go, go out, but we can grow distracted by the dark. We can be dissatisfied by the light and at some point then we may dash off into the darkness seeking something better than the light we have and then we become truly lost if we have a distorted view if we're filled with doubt and fear if we're discontent with Christ we have to understand it's because we have a faulty eye we do we aren't taking in the light we're taking in darkness we're being filled with the wrong thing if you feel 
anything about discontent, fear, etc., etc., so on and so forth, all those things that are not the fruit of the Spirit, then you have to examine in your life, where's the darkness being taken in at? Where's the leak? Where's the fouled point on my lens? Darkness is the absence of God, not an alternative to Him. Remember that. In conclusion, we live in dark times. But as dark as things may seem, it's in the darkest nights that the light shines the most brightly. My challenge for us is to remember that no matter how dark things appear, we are not yet experiencing utter outer darkness. We're not. There's still light. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are present in this world. The world has a filtered, distorted view. They've covered that light up. This is true. But we don't have to accept that. We don't have to be affected by that. We certainly should not allow our joy to be taken from that, our hope, our reassurance. We can accept the light. We can use it daily to keep ourselves on track. And we, we can use it to guide others to Christ. And that's what's needed right now. You and I, equipped with the light of God, are needed in this old world more than ever before. So let's keep our lamps trimmed and bright. If you find yourself wandering in the shades of night, look for the light that is Jesus Christ. And in the sunlight of his love, he'll bid all the darkness flee. Come to Jesus, he will save you. If you already came to the light, but you find yourself stumbling around in the dark, don't stay there for another moment, little Johnny. You have the light of Jesus. God's own eye is there to guide you. Let him guide you back into the light of his truth and love today. We would love to pray with you and help. If there be one of either case, we ask you to come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.